Section thirty two, Chapter seventeen, Part four of the Life and Adventures of Kit Carson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marty on the Central Coast of California. The Life and Adventures of Kit Carson by DeWitt C. Peters. Section thirty two, Chapter seventeen, Part four. During the campaign under consideration, several Indian children were captured. These were generally under the age of ten years. They could not stand the kindly planned treatment which they received while in bondage. For many of them died from overeating, after having so long been accustomed to Indian frugality. One of the women prisoners taken, openly declared, and there is no reason why she should not be believed, that many of the younger children belonging to her tribe had been strangled by their parents and friends in order to prevent their becoming an inconvenience, and thus prevent their being able to prosecute the war, thereby showing that their hatred of the white man was deeply rooted, and that their anger had been aroused to its highest degree. On the publishing of peace, those Indian children who still lived were collected and through the Indian agents, restored to their relatives and friends. The good effect which the moral of this campaign had on the surrounding Indian nations cannot be denied. They soon became loud in proclaiming their friendships for the Americans. Taking advantage of the now crippled condition of the Utahs and Apaches, their enemies, the Arapahoes and Cheyennes, were ready to pounce upon them at a moment's warning. The opportunity did not, however, present itself until long after peace had been established with the white men, when the Utahs and the Apaches had been able to recover from their losses and collect again. War party after war party of Cheyennes and Arapahoes entered the country of their old enemies the Apaches and Utahs, but returned unable to find them. Yellow Bear, a head war chief of the Arapahoes, did not accompany his braves on these expeditions, and he would not believe that they could not find either the Apaches or Utahs. Therefore, to show his people that there was one warrior living of the olden stamp, he started, accompanied by his youngest squaw, to meet and fight them. A severe snowstorm compelled this noble chieftain to come into Fort Massachusetts. While he was there, the commanding officer of the post endeavored to dissuade him from his rash undertaking. In reply, the chief said, Captain, my young men are no longer warriors. They have become squaws. I sent them to seek out our nation's enemies. They went, discovered their fires, and counted their lodges, but were afraid to attack them. I am now on my way to find the Utah village where I intend either to smoke the pipe of peace or offer fight to any three of their chiefs. If they kill me otherwise than fairly, perhaps it will stir up once more the fire in the breasts of the warriors of the Arapaho Nation. The speech was delivered with so much pathos, and yet with such an oratorical air that the interpreter was enabled to catch and translate every word of it. 
Yellow Bear was now informed of the recent campaign against the Utahs and Apaches, but the news made no change in his determination. The advice was words thrown away, as he was found conversant with the whole proceedings of the campaign. We have brought in this incident to show how surrounding tribes are directly affected and personally interested in the results of all military transactions with hostile Indians. As we have taken up for a theme the story of this brave and really noble Indian, it may prove interesting to some of our readers if we complete the picture. Yellow Bear has always been the firm friend of Kit Carson, both by word and action. He is the finest specimen of an Indian that the writer ever laid eyes on. He stands in his moccasins over six feet, is straight and symmetrically proportioned. The head, however, is the main attraction of this Indian. Never was a statesman possessed of a better. We once heard him address a large council of his warriors, and although we could not understand one word he said, yet our attention was fixed on the man. For we never saw either before or since such majestic gestures mixed with equal grace in any speaker. It was a masterpiece of acting, and from the humphs or grunts ejaculated by his auditors, we were inclined to think that the speech was impressive. There was one great point about this chief which those who are familiar with the Indian race, as they now exist, cannot but admire. He has never been known to beg. Rather than do this, we believe he would actually starve. We will finish this description of Yellow Bear by adding that he finally listened to the advice of the then commanding officer of Fort Massachusetts and returned to his own nation. On the final arrival at Taos of the troops engaged in this brilliant Indian campaign against the Utahs and Apaches, they received orders to disband. Those whose calling was arms returned to their respective military posts while the New Mexicans scattered to seek their homes, where they were received and justly treated as heroes. Before the forces were dispersed, the Pueblo Indians, who had been employed in the spy companies, gave with the aid of their friends by moonlight a grand war-dance entertainment in the plaza of the town. It proved to be a fine display of this time-honored Indian custom. The combined efforts of the two commanders, Colonel Fauntleroy and Lieutenant Colonel St. Vrain, aided by their followers, among whom Kit Carson played a most conspicuous and important part, had the effect to compel the Indians to send a delegate to Santa Fe, commissioned to sue for peace. Peace was finally granted, which formed a most happy and pleasing termination to this brilliant Indian campaign. It proved afterwards that a great mistake was made in hastily allowing these Indians to evade the punishment they so richly deserved, and which was being so summarily inflicted by entertaining so soon conciliatory measures. At the council that was subsequently held, it was found that only a part of the Apaches were present to sanction the proceedings, and that the remainder were still in the mountains and were either hostile or undecided what course they would pursue. Kit Carson, their agent, was at that meeting, and earnestly opposed the policy of making a treaty so long as any portion of the two nations were insubordinate, as it offered a loophole for those present to creep out whenever they were so inclined. He said, 
that now is the time, if ever, when they might, at a small additional expense, and, with the prospect of saving many valuable lives, show these Indians that they were dealing with a powerful government. His voice and experience were overruled by the other officials present, and the treaty was made. It stipulated that the Indians should receive certain sums annually in case they would settle down and commence farming, and that they should be allowed to select their own locality within certain prescribed limits. The making of such offers to tribes of savages half-subdued is absurd. The wisdom of this assertion has since been clearly shown, for hardly one article contained in the treaty there made has been carried out. The actions of those Apaches present at the council were trifling in the extreme, notwithstanding which they were presented with some cattle. These they objected to receiving on the ground that they were not fat enough to suit their fastidious tastes. They insolently addressed the government officials with the following strain. If you do not give us better, we will again take the road where we can have our choice. The fact was that these half-starved rascals saw that the white men were anxious to make peace, and hence they assumed a haughty air in order to drive a good bargain. The great results which should have been brought about by the teachings of Colonels Fauntleroy and St. Vrain, by this weak diplomacy, were more or less frustrated. These gentlemen, however, had won great renown. They had the savages driven to such extremes that one more expedition led by them in person would have subdued all their obstinacy and made them over-anxious for peace. The Indians had been seven times caught, and, on every one of the occasions, they had been greatly worsted. They had lost at least five hundred horses, all their camp equipage, ammunition, provisions, and most of their arms, and were indeed almost at the mercy of the whites. Under these circumstances they should have been shown true magnanimity and greatness by forcing them into that course which was and is for their own welfare as well as the welfare of the country, and against which they themselves so blindly contend. Say to an Indian that ere many years have passed by the buffalo will all be destroyed, and he will answer you that the great spirit rains them down in the mountains for his red children. This is a fair example of the manner in which most of them listen to the voice of reason. It requires practical and active demonstrations by means of rifles and other weapons to teach them they will not be permitted to plunder and murder at pleasure. The wrong of this conduct they are as well aware of as their white brethren. It is by rifle arguments that their treaties become worth the value of the paper upon which they are written. It is a well-known fact that people who live in Indian countries prefer to have the red men at war rather than bound to peace by such slender ties as they are usually called upon to take upon themselves. In the former case, the settler knows what to expect, and is always prepared for the worst so far as it lies in his power. But in the latter position, he is continually exposed to the caprices of a race who are in many respects as changeable as the very air they breathe. In the old Mexican town of Don Fernandez de Taos, as we have said before, resides at the present time Kit Carson. A stranger entering this town, and especially at a little distance from it, is reminded of a number of brick kilns just previous to being burnt, and all huddled together 
without any regard being paid to symmetry. In order to reach the plaza, which is the main feature of the attraction belonging to the town, the traveller is obliged to follow the crooks and turns of several unattractive streets. The home of Kit Carson faces on the west side of this public square. It is a building only one story in height, but as it extends over considerable space of ground it makes up in part this deficit, and within it is surpassed by but few other houses in the country for the degree of comfort which it furnishes to its occupants. On most any fair day, around the doors of this house may be seen many Indians of various tribes who are either waiting for their companions within, or else the opportunity to present itself so that they themselves can enter. Business or no business to transact with Kit Carson, they cannot come to town without visiting Father Kit, and having a smoke and talk with him. Kit Carson enjoys himself in their society, for his heart and hand have long since taught them that, irrespective of the office which he holds towards them, he is their true friend and benefactor. Never is his patience exhausted by their lengthy visits. He listens to their narrations of grievances, which they lay freely before him for his counsel, even in matters exclusively personal. Being familiar with all those things which will, in the least, touch their feelings and make them interested, he finds no difficulty in entering into the spirit of their affairs, in a manner that exactly suits their tastes. This causes them to look upon him in the same light as they would upon some brave and experienced chief of their own race. Kit Carson takes every opportunity to warn the Indians against the use of intoxicating drinks, and shows them by his own example that fire-water is a dangerous luxury which man does not require and in which he should not indulge. Notwithstanding his best efforts, now and then they get under its influence. On becoming sober, they are so ashamed of their conduct that they often keep clear of their agent until they think he has forgotten the occurrence. Kit Carson, to a certain extent, treats Indians as a wise father does his own children. Hence, he has won their respect as well as confidence, which fact has given him more influence over them than any other man in the country where he lives. When Kit Carson enters the various villages of the Indians under his supervision, he is invariably received with the most marked attention. Having selected the warrior whose guest he intends to be, he accompanies him to his lodge, which is known during his stay as the Soldier's Lodge. He gives himself no concern about his horse, saddle, bridle rifle, or any minor thing. The brave whom he has thus honored considers that he has assumed the responsibility of a soldier and so styles himself. This making of a soldier is no everyday business with the Indians. It is only when they are visited by some great personage for whom they have the greatest respect that this ceremony is gone through with. When thus favored, the soldier at once becomes the sworn friend of the white man who occupies his lodge and will fight and die for him even against his own brethren. It is the opinion of Kit Carson that Indians should not be allowed to come when it pleases them into the settlements. Every visit which they thus make is detrimental to them in many ways. He thinks that the time thus spent could be better employed in hunting or otherwise providing for the wants of their families, 
in the towns of the frontiers they do nothing but beg and learn the vices of the white man which added to their own make them as dangerous and wicked as men can be in lieu thereof he advises that mission and agency houses should be established in their midst when supplies should be furnished to them in a time of need as matters now stand the indians during a severe winter or from some unforeseen accident are liable to become suddenly destitute they are then compelled either to starve or to make inroads upon the property of the settlers on the frontiers besides his indian friends kit carson is surrounded by a host of mexicans and americans to whom he has greatly endeared himself to his children kit carson is a kind and indulgent father and to best illustrate his self-sacrificing attachment for them it is only necessary to relate one striking incident of its proof a few years since he was returning to taos from rayado whither he had been on a visit in company with his wife two children and two servants a mexican man and woman the party had completed the first half of their journey and were jogging over a tract of prairie land that was of considerable extent when suddenly kit carson discovered far off a band of about forty indians being so exposed he at once concluded that he had also been seen for while he was looking he thought he could see the speed of their riding animals increase the glaring rays of the sun impeded his view so that he could not discern at such distance either from their dress or appearance to what tribe they belonged he was in a section of country that was frequently visited by the marauding comanches and as their signs had been recently seen in the neighborhood he made up his mind that it was a band of this tribe that he now saw no time was to be lost so dismounting from the very fleet horse he was riding he placed in his saddle his wife and eldest child to the first named he gave directions to follow on the trail that led to taos and let the bridle reins be a little slack so that the horse would know what was expected of him when he would travel at the top of his speed he said that he intended to ride towards the indians and engage them at first in a parley and then if necessary offer them a single-handed combat at any rate before they could manage to kill him she would have sufficient time to lessen her danger as to the remainder of the party he added there was no alternative but for them to take their chances for life or death bidding his wife and boy good-bye with one heart-rendering look he turned to face his apparent doom as kit approached the indians they began to call out his name as soon as he heard this he aroused himself from the agonizing frame of mind he had been laboring under after parting with all that was so dear to him and as he had thought for the last time to his joy kit quickly recognized before him the familiar faces of some of his indian friends they had come as they afterwards informed him to see him and his helpless charge safely lodged in their home for they had become aware that he was exposed to great danger while the friends were talking some of the indians began to laugh which caused carson to turn his head and look in the direction they were gazing to his astonishment and disgust he saw the truth was too evident to be mistaken that the cowardly mexican man had on his leaving pulled off from her horse mrs carson and her child and having mounted the animal himself 
was making good his escape. The Indians wished to keep up the ruse, pursue, attempt to overtake and punish the poltroon, but Kit Carson was too thankful that matters had gone so well. Therefore he said that he felt he could excuse such a dastardly conduct, and requested the Indians to let it pass unnoticed. It is hardly necessary to add that, with his faithful bodyguard, who had come to watch over him from feelings of earnest respect, gratitude, and affectionate regard, the agent accomplished the remainder of his journey in perfect safety. Several years had elapsed, as the reader can easily estimate, since Kit Carson met while traveling home with one of his expeditions. The Mormon delegate to Congress, who had informed him of his appointment as Indian agent, during this length of time, Kit Carson has retained the office and rendered satisfactory service. The tract of country over which the Indians roam, who are especially connected with this agency, is about equal to its area, to any one of the larger states in the American Confederacy. The Indians who are under his jurisdiction are large and powerful bands of Apaches and Utahs. But, as we have said before, neighboring tribes freely seek his counsel, aid and protectorate power as they may require it, and they all, from habit, consider that they have a claim on his services. To best illustrate this, we have but to cite one instance of which a thousand similar exist. Two Indian women were taken prisoners by the red men of the plains from a band of savages not under the immediate control of Kit Carson who inhabited a section of New Mexico. These squaws, while captives, were subjected to the severest labor and the most brutal punishment which Indian ingenuity could invent. For one year they submitted without exhibiting any outward symptoms by which their condition could be known, but at the end of that time they resolved to escape, even if they were killed in the attempt. Watching a favorable opportunity, they started, and fortunately, so well laid their plans that, for some time, they were not missed. On their prolonged absence being noticed, a party who were well mounted commenced the pursuit, no doubt believing that to recapture the runaways would be an easy task. The squaws, however, eluded the horsemen, and, on foot, made their way to Kit Carson's house at Taos. By him they were hospitably received, entertained, and amply provided for. They had traveled on foot for hundreds of miles, and, while en route, had lived on roots and such other food as fell in their way. In their reduced condition it required kindness, proper diet, and rest to resuscitate them. In the comfortable house to which they had come, these things were at hand, and were freely given, without hoping for the rewards which man can give. The pursuers of these unfortunate Indian women followed on their trail, which, with native instinct, the squaws had made as indistinct as possible, until they found themselves at a Mexican settlement within the boundaries of New Mexico. Here they were informed that their late captives were safe under the protection of Kit Carson. This name acted like magic in settling their future mode of proceedings. They needed nothing more to bid them face about and retrace their steps to their own homes. The squaws in the household of Kit Carson rapidly recruited, and when the time came for them to be sent to their own tribe, they went away rejoicing at their good fortune, first in making their escape, and second 
because they had been so humanely treated by a man whose name they had often heard, but never before seen. As we have said before, and with truth, this is but one example of thousands which have passed by unheralded since Kit Carson first commenced his official career as Indian agent. The duties of an agent are not by Kit Carson confined to the mere letter of the law. His is a heart that could not be happy were he not daily doing some equitable and humane act to ameliorate the condition of the Indian race. The strict duties of an Indian agent require that he should receive and disburse certain sums of money in purchasing such minor articles as the tribes over which he is placed may require. He is to give monthly and quarterly reports to the general government and the superintendent of the territory he is in on the condition, crimes, practices, habits, intentions, health, and such other things as pertain to the economy of his charge. How seldom is the knowledge property attained, and how often are these things entrusted to clerks while the principal receives the emoluments of his office? Of the details which make the Indian happy or miserable, he too frequently knows but little about except from routine. The agent, if he be a fit man, and the Indian is by no means slow in forming his estimate of the person he has to deal with is received into the confidence of the tribes when after sufficient trial he has been proved worthy of their esteem and friendship when once he has gained a foothold in the affections of the savages his task assumes the condition of pleasure rather than severe labor but if he is ignorant of the minute workings of his business he is generally imposed upon and always disliked to such a degree that no honorable man would retain such a position longer than to find out his unpopularity and the causes of it. The Indian agent, to perform his duties well, must be continually at his agency house, or among the Indians, in order that he may personally attend to their wants and protect them from the mercenary visits and contact of outside intruders who are continually watching their opportunity, like hungry wolves, to prey upon and cheat them in every shape and form. In fine, he is to assist the superintendent in managing the entire Indian family. The business of Indian agent, which he strictly and conscientiously attends to, keeps Kit Carson employed during the most of his time. Yet, as often as once each year he manages affairs so that he can spend a few weeks in the exciting scenes of the chase. On these excursions, which are eagerly looked forward to by his friends, he is accompanied by the crack shots of the country, including his Indian and Mexican friends. On horseback and on open prairies, Kit Carson is indisputably the greatest hunter in America, if indeed he is not the greatest hunter now living. He has killed, in the brief space of three consecutive hours, with his rifle, twenty-two antelope, at a time when the game was so scarce that other men who followed the business of hunting under pay, and were no ordinary shots, thought themselves doing well to bring down six of the same animals. It gives the greatest satisfaction to the people of New Mexico that Kit Carson is, from time to time, reinstalled in his office of Indian agent, notwithstanding the other great changes that have been and are continually making in their politics. His fitness for the position which he holds cannot be doubted. When the good, 
already accomplished by his efforts is considered no one would be so loath to part with his services as the indians themselves his influence reaches far beyond his own tribes and is felt by the cheyennes arapahoes and kiowas who are fast becoming very chary about visiting with hostile intentions the settlements of northern new mexico kit carson is still in the full vigor of his manhood and is capable of undergoing almost any amount of privation and hardship therefore we infer that to the country he has adopted he will be spared many years to come as one of its most valuable citizens and when the time arrives for his final exit from this stage of life he will bequeath to his family and friends a spotless character and an enviable reputation end of section thirty two chapter seventeen part four recording by marty on the central coast of california end of the life and adventures of kit carson by dewitt c peters